I want to take as my text this morning that reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1120. Romans chapter 6, and beginning at verse 1. Page 1120 in your Pew Bible. Which texts I'd like us to read again. Romans 6, and beginning at verse 1. One of the letters that Paul wrote when he wasn't in prison. <laughs> and so he says, And what shall we say? That are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, meganoita. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This morning I want to talk about living life dead to sin and alive to God. Living life dead to sin and alive to God. Indeed, one might say that living a life dead to sin and alive to God is fundamental to what it means to live an authentic Christian life. And that even if some who call themselves Christians are in fact living a different kind of life in which being alive to sin and dead to God is perhaps more typical. But be that as it may, Paul f starts off first by saying that our calling as believers is to live our life dead to sin. Every time I read that, I think about, you know, people who um, usually they'll have some money and they have children. And then one of those children will do something that they don't like. And they'll write them out of the will and then they will say of the child, he's dead to me. And that's sort of the idea here. Where fellowship is broken. There is no relationship. To be dead to sin. To have no relationship with it. Not alive to sin, but dead to it. Not embracing it or making excuses for it, but hating it. And rejecting it. And living our lives dead to sin is part of what it means, even really, to be quite frank, to live a normal Christian life. Indeed, what Paul is describing here in our text is not meant to be understood as some kind of higher life, a, 
a life for exceptional Christians, but rather the kind of life to be lived by anyone who's a truly converted person. And to continue living in sin is to live in a way that God never intended for those who truly believe. Indeed, notice again verses 1 and 2. What shall we say? Are we to, as believers, to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, God forgives. And so that's true. Should we continue on sinning? Not take it seriously? Notice verse 2. By no means. This is to completely misunderstand the grace of God. And then he says, indeed, how can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, this is all a, a continuation, uh, and, and in, in particular, a comment made with regards to a comment made just a few verses earlier in chapter 5, in particular verse 5 and verse 20, where the Apostle Paul says famously, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We mentioned that as we were opening service this morning. That no matter how much sin there is that you have to deal with, God has enough grace to deal with it. And to start you new and fresh. And, and, and if you're in Christ, as the apostle says in another place, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and everything has become new. And that's all given as a gift of grace. But then there is this misunderstanding. Indeed, that idea is not to be understood to mean that the way in which we experience more of God's grace is to keep on sinning. In fact, Paul says in verse 2, by no means are in the, uh, the AV, the King James, God forbid, which is how they would have put it in the early 17th century, or in the New English translation, absolutely not, which is exactly what the Greek means. In fact, it, this isn't at all what grace teaches us, if you're familiar with the New Testament, teachings of Jesus or the teachings of the apostles in other places. In fact, this famous passage of Scripture, which is the, the epistle reading for every Christmas from Titus chapter 2 and beginning at verse 11, the apostle Paul writing to one of his protégés, in fact, a man he left to be bishop in Crete in the first century, Titus, he wrote this to Titus. He said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people without distinction, and what does the grace of God teach us, Paul? See, he says in verse 12, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what the grace of God teaches us. He saves us freely, and then he says, and so now I've, I've, wiped, I've wiped your debt clean. And now won't you live with me? Live for me? Won't you follow me? Well, who wouldn't do it? In fact, the problem is not, uh, is not us and our understanding of sin so much as it is perhaps our appreciation of grace. And grace, if it's properly understood, produces great appreciation within us. And Paul isn't the only one who talked about this. In fact, you see it everywhere if you happen to have an eye for it. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, the first part of which we're very familiar, but then he also says the second part. 
Peter wrote, for he himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his own body upon the tree. Substitutionary atonement. That, in order that, with a purpose that we might die to sin. That's exactly Paul's language. He didn't know Peter and Paul talked the same way. He himself bore our sins in our own body upon the tree in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. <laughs> and so living our lives dead to sin is part of what it means to live a normal Christian life. This is God's expectation for all of us and he gives us the grace to do it. And then Paul says that living our lives dead to sin is the natural result of us as believers being spiritually united with Jesus Christ. Which is true if we're believers. Indeed, the reality of our spiritual union with Christ is mentioned in the scriptures and it's signified to us or it's a thing that, that, that is pointed out to us. In baptism. In fact, notice again verses 1 through 3. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. How can we who died to sin live any longer? And then verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Seemingly the first mention of baptism is water baptism, which is what we would usually think of um, when we think of the word baptism. But the second part refers to baptism into Christ's death. Indeed, our, our water baptism signifies our spiritual union with Christ. In fact, in verses that follow, the, that's mentioned, if we've been united with Christ. Baptism signifies this, points to it, which is what a, what sacra a sacrament is designed to do, and in particular, the sacrament of baptism. In fact, it was Augustine who famously defined a sacrament as an outward and visible sign. Notice a sign is, is not the thing itself. A sign is a thing that points to something else. If, you, if you're driving down the road and it says Houston this way, that's not Houston. It's a sign that points to the reality of a town, a city called Houston. A sacrament is not the thing itself. It is, a, it is, a, it is an outward and visible sign that indicates an inward and spiritual grace. To put it simply, it's a thing that you can see that points to the reality of a thing that is real even though you can't see it. Now, I'm promised in the scriptures, as you are too, that if I place faith in Christ and I'm born again, I'm spiritually united with Christ. But how do you see that? Well, you can't. It's an invisible reality. I can't see gravity until somebody should be so foolish uh, as to imagine that it doesn't exist and jumps off the roof. Then I see its effect, but I don't see it. It's more like the wind. I never see the wind, but I see the effects of the wind. And baptism points to the reality, reminds us of what God knows about us and what we need to know about ourselves. And so the reality of our spiritual union with Christ, if we're true believers, is signified for us in baptism. And Paul says that our spiritual union with Christ frees us from the power of sin. That's how we can do it. <laughs> and you may be struggling with it. And maybe you're struggling with it because um, you're not born again. The Spirit of God doesn't 
live within you, notwithstanding you may be a church member or some other, you may be a religious person. But if the Spirit of God dwells within you, you're freed from it if you want to be free. And that seems to be one of the points of this passage. Notice verses 6 and 7. He says, and we know our, our old self, that is the person we are without Christ, was crucified with him, crucified with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That is to say, the body used by sin to do evil things. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin, our bodies, might be, and being used for, as a tool for, for evil, might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, For one who has died, as we have died in Christ, have been set free from sin. And so because as believers we are spiritually united with Christ, when Christ died for our sins, we died with Him. And baptism indicates that. It gives us something to see. To point to this spiritual and invisible truth. When Christ died... We died, and our old unregenerate selves died with him. And that in order, as Paul says, that's, that sin's use of our bodies to do evil might be rendered powerless. To break sin's grip on us. As Paul says, that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. As he says in verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. And so that's the first thing. Our calling as believers to live our lives dead to sin. In fact, the closer you get to God and the more you walk with God, the more pleasant you will find the pleasure of holiness and more and more sin will be, can't possibly meet up to what you need to fill that God-shaped hole. In fact, it's God-shaped and only God can fill it. The psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or David Taylor writing in his book of, what is it about the Psalms, a guide for life? He said, to be full of God is to be full of joy. <laughs> Sin is a thing to be rejected, especially if you know the joy of holiness. So that's the first thing. But not only that, our calling as believers, Paul also says, is to live our lives alive to God. Dead to sin. Have that kind of a relationship with sin. I'm dead to you. Don't even come knocking. Sometimes I'm in my own house and I'm alone and I just say, no! Well, there's nobody there, you know. So Scott, you know, just think of what you and I can do. No one would ever know. And I say to the devil, there's somebody else here. My God. And you just come to seek and to kill and to destroy. Why would I ever listen to you? Right. So the answer is no. And our living our lives alive to God is part of what it means to live a normal Christian life. 
indeed living alive to God is not meant to be an exceptional way of life for the special few, but the normal way of life for every true believer. And not living our lives alive to God, or if you like, in continuous communion and fellowship with God, is to live our lives in a way that God never intended for us who believe. In fact, as I was thinking about this, in Paul's words, the opening lines of John's first letter came to mind. First John chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. This is so powerful. This is, this is, these are the words of an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. John was one together with Peter who told the members of the Sanhedrin who were threatening them even with their lives if they didn't stop preaching and healing in the name of Jesus. And they said, whether it's right in your eyes or God's, you judge, but we cannot keep silent about the things we've seen and heard. We can't. And so he begins his first letter, John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Christ. He's the same one who wrote the gospel. In the beginning was the word. When the, when the beginning of all things, the time-space continuum, for the first time came into existence and began to run. The one from the beginning was already there. He's the Logos. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the one from the beginning, whose words we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we saw him, and we looked upon him, we touched him with our hands. Concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. He is eternal life. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. That's not some unusual thing. This is what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. To enjoy fellowship with one another. And the fellowship that we enjoy with one another is fellowship with God. And his son, Jesus Christ. And so as believers, we're meant to live our lives alive to God. Not in separation, not in broken fellowship. This person perhaps we never talk to unless some crisis comes along or when we need something. We talk about that, you know. The guy, it's Bob again. Well, he must want something. Because he doesn't just come here to be with us because he loves us and he wants to spend time with us. The only time Bob shows up is to get something so he can get it and be on his way. That's not fellowship. Paul says that living our lives alive to God is a natural result of our being spiritually united with Christ, which reality is signified for us in our baptism. Indeed, notice again, verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
If you express faith and then you come to the church and you say, what do I do next? And, and we say, he told you to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, if, it, if it, we put you down in the water, you died and we bring you back up. In fact, um, that's what they did with my daughter Victoria at St. Paul's Cathedral some years ago. And it was interesting. And we brought her in her regular clothes and then took all her clothes off. And then the dean took her and down into this great huge font at the back of the, back of the cathedral, the huge great stone canopy, and down she went. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And they dried her off and then they put her on her baptismal gown, all white and shimmering, signifying the holiness that's given as a gift to those who come to the font and faith. Notice verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? There's more going on than just there. The God who, the God who, who transcends time and space sees it all as an eternal now. And those who would place faith later as we would experience sees them at the cross in Christ Dying with him. Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We've been buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so our spiritual union with Christ results in new life. And because we're spiritually united to Christ, we died with him when he died. We were buried with him when he was buried. And we were raised with him when he rose. And that we were raised with him has two implications. Firstly, which might seem the most obvious, is that because Christ rose from the dead bodily, we too shall rise. If he rose, then we shall rise. In fact, later in Romans, in chapter 8 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this, And if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, if the spirit that raised him from the dead is now alive in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Physical resurrection through his spirit that dwells in you. And so because Christ rose bodily from the dead, we too shall rise. Secondly, because Christ's rising marked the end of his living with reference to sin. So we too, because we've been raised with him. We too now live our lives not with reference to sin. Or we're being challenged not to. Don't let that be a reference point. Don't let that be your center. As I said some many months ago. If you're going to sin, do it by accident. <laughs> Don't pursue it as a thing to be pursued as if it was going to do some good thing for you. It corrupts you in all of its forms, great and small. And so, because he 
and rising mark the end of his reference to sin. So we too now live our lives not with reference to sin, but rather with reference to God. Dead to sin and alive to God. He's the center. He's my primary relationship. Which might seem, you know, like maybe in some left-handed way an expression of disloyalty. Ask my family when I'm doing better. When God is at the center or something else. Maybe even them. When God is at the center, everyone around you stands to benefit in every way that a benefit truly is a benefit. And so we live with reference to God, alive to God and in newness of life. And so our spiritual union with Christ results in new life. And as Paul says, and as we've already mentioned, we live our lives alive to God because this is the kind of life that Christ lives even now. The Father is his primary focus. Indeed, notice again verses 8 and 10 as we come shortly to a close. Verse 8, and now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he's now living, it's in the present tense, he's living to God. And then Paul brings his argument to a close with this directive in verse 11. And so you too must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is where the true Christian life begins. By considering or reckoning, recognizing this thing to be true, about ourselves, that we are in Christ dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that, not by relying on our own power. In fact, that's where we get all goofed up. We say, this is what you're talking about is impossible. Well, I want to thank you for observing that. It is absolutely impossible. You can't do it in your own strength by pulling yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. You know, I heard that phrase many years ago, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I went home and tried to do it. I got my cowboy boots on and tried. You can't do it. It's a, it's a metaphor for the impossible. You can't do it on your own. You must do it as I must do it. And as all of us must do it if we would do it. And the power of Christ. As Paul wrote famously in Galatians chapter 2, for I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so I wonder this morning, will you let Christ live in you? living life dead to sin and alive to God. Amen? Let us pray. Help us to do it, Lord. Why would we ever think that the, that the, that the Christian life is some sort of a, well, you know, just sort of a cultural thing in my part of the country, in my neighborhood. I was raised this way, so we go to church on our way to brunch. 
That's what we do, you know, if we don't have something else better to do. But a real Christian life, Lord, is, 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 is transformational. It's, it's, it's a radical. It's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all things become new. Which is true when we surrender and say, Lord, I can't do it, but I know you can do it through me. Lord, may that be our prayer this morning. In humility that we might be empowered and experience things perhaps that we've never experienced before, to experience them again or to experience them in a new way, which you want us to experience because you love us. Help us to do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.